The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of this information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Jim Washer. Please go ahead. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to today's Energy Intelligence Virtual Roundtable. My name is Jim Washer. I'm Executive Editor with Energy Intelligence, and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion. OPEC Geopolitics Shale, What's Worrying Oil Markets? So OPEC and non-OPEC have had their meeting in Vienna. They've agreed to extend output cuts to the end of 2018. And the Saudis have already sent a very strong and explicit message that they'll be leading by example in January and cutting by more than the required amounts. So our objective today is really to look at how effective that agreement will be in rebalancing oil markets next year and what other factors are likely to come into play. Shale is one obvious worry. US title output has been rebounding strongly this year, but there's a growing sense that shale producers are spending their money a little more carefully these days, which could put a limit on future shale gains. We're also going to need to spend some time today talking about geopolitics. Geopolitical risk has re-emerged as an element in oil prices over the past couple of months, thanks to worries about political upheaval and supply disruption in places like Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. And in the background, there remain political concerns related to other major oil and gas producers such as Iran, Russia, and Qatar. So, to discuss these issues, I'm joined by three of my most knowledgeable colleagues. From our Dubai Bureau, our senior Middle East reporter, Amin Abaka, in London, the editor of Energy Compass, Jill Janola. And in the US, our New York Bureau Chief and editor of Oil Market Intelligence, John Van Shake. Amina, Jill, and John, thank you for joining us today. So, Amina, let's start with you. You were in Vienna. You saw the OPEC non-OPEC deal, the extension to the end of 2018, take shape. What's your view of how this is going to hold together? Thank you, Jim, for the introduction. Um, uh, as you've mentioned, uh, Saudi Arabia managed to pull off the agreement, which was the wish of the Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to extend the deal until the, the end of 2018. Um, and it is the explicit wish of Saudi Arabia to keep this deal intact, uh, both to keep prices at their current level, if not a little bit higher, um, which, uh, which I think, I, and I, I believe that it, it will pull this agreement through and we will see the extension, um, uh, the agreement uh, hold until the end of the year because on a political level, uh, there has been a lot of dialogue uh, with Russia, um, the major non-OPEC uh, participant, and there seems to be a lot of collaboration and agreement that this deal needs to stay in place until the end of 2018. So we've got that commitment now from OPEC and OPEC to maintain output cuts until the end of next year. We have the Saudi-Russia relationship, as you explained there, Amina, at the heart of this deal. So, John, if we can turn to you for a moment now, is that going to be enough to rebalance the market in 2018? And what do you see as the main obstacles to that rebalancing? Um, on the face of it, looking at, at our balances, we, we think that this deal can do the trick. Um, you, you see that the rebalancing process is on track. 
you see crude oil futures uh, at multi-year highs. Uh, you see physical prices being relatively strong. The forward price curve shows a tight market. And, for example, we see it right now in a market where Brent reacts uh, strongly to the outage of the Fortis pipeline system. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you can argue, well, you know, it's 450,000 bells a day going straight into the heart of the global benchmark. But it does show that the market is reacting strongly to outages because the cushions, uh, the cushions are getting thinner. And they are getting thinner because we are rebalancing and because we have lower inventories. So it is, it is in, in this environment that we should see the OPEC and, and non-OPEC deal. Um, if they stick to their pledges, and they have been very good so far, we think we can uh, keep this, this, they can keep this process uh, on track. Um, and it's important to keep it on track because, you know, these ongoing uh, production cuts are important to keep this market relatively balanced. We're not yet in a situation of, of ongoing shortages. We still have spells of surpluses. Um, you know, rebalancing is, is not something of a straight line. Um, we think, for example, that the first half of 18 could well be soft. Um, we can see a surplus of perhaps up to 500,000 barrels a day in the first half. So OPEC and non-OPEC need to keep the, uh, the taps tight uh, uh, to prevent this uh, 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 rebalancing process from stalling. Um, so to your question, what can go wrong with the balancing? Well, um, you know, absent some big macro uh, surprise like a financial crisis, um, it, it looks as if there shouldn't be too many obstacles. Um, in fact, we think this this is a market that is kind of in danger of perhaps even overheating. Um, demand is pretty robust for at, in in 218 at at we think a, a 1.4 million barrels a day growth on the year, um, and. On the supply side, we think that the uh, additional non-OPEC supply will be uh, uh, nonetheless pretty much cover demand growth, but on the uh, flip side, we don't uh, uh, model for outages, and we have seen uh, quite a bit of these outages. And in a balanced market, these outages matter, matter so every single outage uh, will speed up that rebalancing process. And, and if that goes fast enough, then, uh, you know, we will see uh, OPEC and, and non-OPEC perhaps starting a little bit more production uh, by the end of, of 18. So overall, uh, it seems that this, this deal should be able to do the trick. Okay, that's, that's reasonably bullish, I suppose, John. I'm sure they'll be OPEC, um, use it to, to OPEC and non-OPEC's, uh, non-OPEC allies' ears. Let's just talk about one risk here though. I mean shale has obviously been a disruptive force for oil markets in recent years. It's still not something whose dynamics we fully understand. Where do you think shale is going to fit into next year's supply and demand picture and do you think we're looking at another big rebound? Yeah, yeah, shale has been disruptive and yes we look at another uh, big uh, rebound. Uh, at the same time uh, we also think there might be a cap on this is on this rebound. So uh, the oil price for now obviously is high enough for, for shale to grow again at a, at a rapid clip. Um, the difference between now and the past is that we think the financial climate is different um, for shale companies in particular. Uh, and it's, the, it's the, the, the shareholders that are now saying we want value over volume. And, and it's, it's that change in financial attitude that's going to be 
uh, uh, restrictive to the shale oil companies, we think. Um, they're being told to return value, um, and we think that the uh, that this this policy will see a limit to the upside of U.S. output if the price goes over $55 for WTI. So, for example, we think, having done the modeling, that at $50 the U.S. can grow at, and this is shale only in the five big plays, at 680,000 barrels a day. Um, if shale goes, however, to 55, um, the growth will only move to 740,000 barrels a day. So it's, that's a rather small increase over 50, and much above 55 will not have a, a major impact, will not move the, the needle much. Um, having said that, uh, shale is also in, in, in responsible for massive volumes of natural gas liquids. Uh, those can grow up to like 450,000 barrels a day next year. So we're looking at at a million, million, one million, two barrels a day growth from the U.S. So it's a massive rebound, close to the the uh, the numbers that we see for for demand growth for next year. So it will have an impact again. Okay, thanks, John. That's an important point I think about natural gas liquids. That's off. It's very easy to overlook where I think we're looking at. Um, supply demand balances. Um, let's just turn back to OPEC for a moment and a question for you, Amina, uh, on, the, on the Saudis. I mean, markets have been quite spooked lately by the upheaval in Saudi Arabia, uh, particularly the arrests of the princes uh, a few weeks ago. Are they, are they right to be worried? Is this really just an, an internal issue or does this, does this have any short or long-term bearing on oil policy or oil operations, do you think? Okay, first of all, Jim, I'm currently in uh, Saudi Arabia. I attended a conference today that took uh, place in the eastern province and is organized by Aramco. And uh, the main theme of the conference is to encourage uh, local Saudi investors to um, to open businesses related to uh, providing services and content uh, for Aramco's project. And um, naturally, I mean, my my uh, immediate thought is that a lot of Saudis and especially the wealthy families here in the eastern province would be worried about uh, what happened uh, in, in Riyadh with the arrests of uh, the princes and uh, the businessmen and so on that are uh, still currently being held, held at the Ritz-Carlton. Um, and there is no uh, clear date on when they will be freed or what the settlement would look like. But from what I saw over the past two days uh, is that all the major um, families were at the conference. They're very willing to uh, to engage uh, in, in investing. There seems to be an overall very positive um, vibe here. They, they, I mean, there is some concern and questioning, but uh, I, I see it. I mean, uh, we haven't seen it impact uh, production um, or cause any jitters in the energy uh, sector. So it's very much until until now, it's an internal. Uh, issue, um, and I don't see it affecting um, Saudi Arabia's oil production. Is it something to be concerned about? Uh, maybe, I mean, we haven't seen any um, 
arrests being made or any accusations being made for corruption in, uh, regarding international companies, international investors. That hasn't happened. It's all been local um, Saudi businessmen and princes and so on. Uh, if that happens, maybe this would uh, raise more questions. Uh, but I, I'm, I mean, of course, I mean, from from outside Saudi Arabia, uh, speaking to um, people in different sectors, there, um, uh, especially in the finance sector, they, there has been um, concern over this issue, but it hasn't had an impact on Saudi Arabia's oil production. Okay. Um... Jill, let's turn to you for a moment here and look a little more broadly at the question of geopolitical risk, which, as I said, it does seem to re-emerge as an element in price formation in quite a big way in recent months. Um, so where do you see the big geopolitical flash points that could upset oil markets next year? Is it going to be Venezuela? Is it going to be Iraq? Is it going to be Iran? Um, well, we've seen, we've seen oil prices edge up following Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And while that coincides with the North Sea outage that John mentions, it also fits with what we've seen as progress toward rebalancing has been made, that absent a huge surplus of stocks and with Saudi Arabia looking a bit lonely as, as, as the only producer with significant spare capacity, geopolitical risk is once again affecting oil prices. And we saw this earlier with the um, Kurdish independence referendum um, and, and, the, and the fallout from that. <clears throat> uh, the Jerusalem decision is something to watch. It could lead to localized conflict in and around Israel, including between Hezbollah and Israel. And that while there's no oil directly at stake because of this, this sort of you know thinner cushion, prices could still be impacted. Um, as far as the kind of the, the, the countries you mentioned, in Venezuela, it's it's difficult to predict flashpoints. Maduro has um, you know he, he keeps muddling through. Um, but under the status quo in Venezuela, I mean, some of our reporting shows that you could see oil output fall by 150 to 300,000 barrels a day next year. Um, as far as OPEC is concerned, this, this helps the rebalancing process. However, unwittingly, Venezuela wants to you know, be a part of that. Um, the country holds elections next year, but these aren't really expected to unseat the current president, and we've just seen him ban key opposition groups. One thing to watch for is whether the army makes a move against Maduro. Uh, the opposition has, has really you know, proved unable to do that, the political opposition. Um, but with the general having recently been installed at state PDV and the oil ministry, this may now look less likely, I mean, in that the army now has a more direct uh, link and control over you know, the country's sole revenue stream. Um, any U.S. sanctions targeting... Venezuela's export would disrupt flows, um, with the U.S. importing uh, 725,000 barrels a day <coughs> excuse me, in the first half of 2017. But the Trump administration may very well be preoccupied with other matters, from the Russia probe to North Korea to more Mideast fallout from Trump's Jerusalem decision. Um, U.S. sanctions would also be unilateral, meaning Venezuela's oil wouldn't be shut in, but that it would have to uh, find new homes, with Asia the most likely destination. Uh, when it comes to Iraq, um, on one level, the, the country's prospects look good. Um, Prime Minister al-Abadi has declared the war against Islamic State over. Uh, southern oil flows are increasing and were never seriously disrupted um, by the jihadist group in any case. Um, al-Abadi, we've also seen over the last <clears throat> month or two, has also reasserted control over Kirkuk. And even if that's crimped Iraq's oil flows from the north, 
southern exports have compensated an average uh, 3.5 million barrels a day last month. So what to watch for in Iraq? Um, in one sense, the country is, is kind of back to square one. Post the sort of Islamic State war, it needs to you know, look inside, look internally, and find a way to keep the country whole, and this includes accommodating the Sunni population. Part of the aim of keeping the country whole has seemingly been accomplished because the Kurds have been effectively tamed, um, though we can't rule out uh, disruptive infighting within the Kurdistan region, I don't think. Um, and when it comes to the Sunnis, I think El Abadi is, is, has demonstrated more goodwill than its predecessor, Nuri al-Maliki. Um, I think there is a concern about sectarian fighting in the country after, after the sort of, as the war against Islamic State um, winds down. You do have Iran-backed Shiite militias deployed in largely Sunni areas. Um, but what, what Iraqis want and what they'll be looking for is, is jobs. They'll be looking for rebuilding and for corruption to be tamed. And if Elabadi can do anything on these fronts, that kind of helps keep the country on a good track. But coming up in Iraq, probably around April, you have elections. And this his ability to kind of push on those issues could be complicated by these elections with handouts kind of required to keep key factions happy, which could open new doors to corruption and also means rebuilding funds may not go where they're most needed. Um, as far as Iran, it's mostly a case about sanctions and what the Trump administration and Congress decide to do. Congress right now is working on new Iran legislation that aims to sort of tighten the screws on Iran but still maintain the U.S.'s commitments under the nuclear deal. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, senators leading the effort have said they want to see legislation that would include triggers to automatically reimpose sanctions if a, a, Iran sort of um, violates or, or, or hits certain targets, like if its so-called breakout period for a nuclear weapon were to fall under a year, and ballistic missile triggers, which are not part of the nuclear deal, could also be included in this new legislation. Um, this is a tough line to walk to sort of tighten, you know, tighten measures against Iran, but keep the U.S. Um, commitment to the deal, to, to uphold that commitment. And how Iran interprets this new legislation, we will we'll have to wait and see. As far as when that's coming, um, it, we won't know more until January or February at this stage. Um, the, the thing to watch for, too, in mid-January, January 15th, is what Trump decides to do when the next executive action is required to suspend or waive Iran sanctions. What we don't know is whether Trump thinks his decision in October to not certify the nuclear deal was sufficient to make his point that the nuclear deal was a bad deal, so, or whether he will still want to sort of make some, some kind of objection by refusing to sign the waiver that suspends sanctions. Not signing that waiver would reimpose some U.S. sanctions on Iran and almost immediately and put foreign investors there and potentially buyers of Iranian crude at risk of U.S. penalties. So this could see Iran's exports fall, especially to Europe, um, and also be diverted, diverted and likely discounted to buyers that care less about U.S. sanctions like China. Uh, the other thing to watch for is just more generally escalating U.S.-Iran tensions, especially if a cabinet reshuffle that Trump has well, that has been kind of widely reported, goes ahead because you'll see 
uh, key, key players, that are officials that are more seen as Iran hawks, kind of rise to the fore. Okay, that's a very, very comprehensive run through uh, some of the main geopolitical issues. Uh, thank you for that, Jill. And also, there's, a, there's your first kind of potential challenge of the new year on that front with what may happen with the US and Iran in January. Um, okay, at this point, let's go to the audience to see if we have any questions coming in from people listening in. And at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star in one on your touchtone phone. You may remove yourself from the queue at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, that's star in one to ask a question. We'll pause for a moment to allow questions to queue. Okay, thank you. And while we're waiting, Jill, just one other thing. Uh, I suppose it was on people's minds a bit earlier this year, but it's one other issue that seems to have gone a little bit quiet recently is this row in the Gulf between Qatar and some of its neighbours and um, you know fellow members of the Gulf Cooperation Council. How do you see that playing out next year? Does that have any implications for the um, region's oil and gas operations or cooperation with OPEC? Right, yeah, no, I think it, it certainly has been fairly <clears throat> fairly quiet, and a lot of the issues we looked into early on in terms of whether IOC is investing in Qatar but elsewhere in the Gulf would be forced to choose, those those have, you know, not come to be, and that's been all right. So six months on from this, when this blockade started, um, Qatar's LNG exports have not been disrupted by the blockade, and of course the Qataris um, have announced these plans to grow LNG output by sort of 20-25% from 77 million tons per year to 100 million tons per year. There hasn't been much detail on that yet, um, though they have said I think that Chioda is, is carrying out a study. Um, and as I said, IOCs haven't been forced to choose, which was a potential concern because the blockade of Qatar is kind of wrapped up with the sort of um, partly wrapped up with the sort of Saudi focus on um, trying to sort of isolate and demonize Iran. Um, and this, this remains the case even though Qatar has had to kind of turn to Iran for increased trade and for use of its airspace. One, how it impacts OPEC um, is something to watch, though. Uh, the producer group has, you know, has a long history of putting oil above policy, politics, even when the politics gets uh, pretty nasty, with, with Iran and Iraq famously cooperating within OPEC even during the Iran-Iraq war. But right now you're seeing these sort of stresses and strains build up. Saudi Arabia is really sort of zeroing in on Iran, its, its fellow OPEC member, but at the same time has made these moves within, within the Mideast sort of Arab Gulf um, that have fractured and are weakening the sort of usual alliance of producers there. Qatar's been isolated. And we've also seen Kuwait, which has tried to act as a mediator in the dispute, be kind of sidelined by the Saudis, including last week, I think, when it, maybe it was last week, they hosted a GCC annual summit. The Emir of Qatar was invited, and nobody else sent their top officials. So this was a bit of an embarrassment for Kuwait, and, and the summit sort of fizzled out on the first day. So there are, I mean, if you look at OPEC, you have usually, what, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the UAE kind of aligned. There are some tensions there, and you add to that Saudi Arabia's new alliance with Russia on production cuts, and OPEC doesn't look quite the same as it used to. Okay. Thank you for that, Jill. Um, let's just check again if we have any questions coming in from our audience. And once again, that's Darren one to ask a question. Okay. Um, 
All right, Anna, let's turn to you again. Um, we've, just on the, on the subject of OPEC and non-OPEC cooperation here, we have this agreement for 2018, um, but what about the longer term? Do we have the foundations here for longer term cooperation between OPEC and key non-OPEC players like Russia? Is that what the Saudis would really like? Uh, Jim, there's been a lot of talk about institutionalizing the role of non-OPEC and especially Russia, but um, so far, I mean, we haven't really heard on how, I mean, how that uh, will work, um, and especially longer term, I mean, after this agreement expires, uh, there, there are many questions. During the last uh, OPEC meeting, um, the, uh, the Russian uh, energy minister had asked to include a clause which says that uh, the, the, the current agreement, uh, which expires at the end of 2018, should be reviewed at the upcoming meeting, which is in June. Um, they added that clause, and he wanted that in because a lot of the Russian oil companies are um, less comfortable with this long extension and would like to see an exit strategy. For Saudi Arabia, I mean, they made it very clear that it's uh, premature to talk about an exit strategy. We had comments uh, from uh, both Kuwaiti and UAE officials um, recently, this week, all saying, again, uh, talking about an exit plan is premature. But some hinted that uh, discussions of an exit plan could be possible um, in June just to give some kind of reassurances to, uh, to the Russians that there is a plan in place. So longer term, I mean, I, I think um, for, for Saudi Arabia and many of the OPEC members, they believe that they no longer, uh, OPEC can no longer manage the market alone. It needs the help of non-OPEC, and this is the way forward. Um, but how that will work in terms of formalizing the role of non-OPEC um, is still unclear. Okay. Um, we are nearly out of time here, but I'm just going to check one last time if we have any questions coming in from the audience. And there is a question from Mahmoud Nick with Saddle. Your line is open. Uh, hi. Hello there. Hello. Yeah, actually, I have a couple of points to mention. Uh, I mean, how fragile is the situation having this 40s pipeline went down and this Austria about the gas, and you also mentioned about this, Venezuela production. Last year they were producing 2.5 million, now they're producing two, and as you mentioned again, next year is going to go down uh, based on your estimation about 150. So all of this are like upside, and again mentioning that pipeline shows that how quick things can swing. You know, what's your comment about upside and upside price for the oil next year? Okay, so John, that's maybe a question for you. So just to recap, looking at uh, some of the challenges the market's facing, this 40s outage this week, we've also got this kind of chronic sort of deterioration in Venezuela production um, and, uh, you know, OPEC being quite disciplined as well. So where does that leave us in terms of upside sort of price risk uh, looking into 2018? Yeah, as I said, you know, we're <clears throat> we think that this deal uh, is is a good deal, the OPEC non-OPEC deal, to prevent the market from overheating, and that is in part because of the reasons you are mentioning. Um, the 40s pipeline, uh, Ineos expect that to be repaired anywhere between two and four weeks, so that's anywhere between say roughly five and ten million barrels that we're uh, not going to see to come mar come to market. 
um, <clears throat> Venezuela, uh, that is more structural. Um, oh, by the way, North Sea, we do think in 2018 that, again, the North Sea will surprise to the upside in terms of output. Uh, we think that it will not go down. It will go up just a little bit from 17, and 17 was a relatively good year as well. Uh, structurally, obviously, Venezuela is the bigger threat. Um, <clears throat> one, one of the, the, the previous uh, CEOs of, of uh, PDVSA told me, he said, if they go along this this route, they will see production down 800,000 barrels a day by the end of next year. Um, he was obviously disappointed with how the current regime is dealing with the company and <clears throat> and perhaps uh, slightly over pessimistic but it but it definitely reflects the sense that if you do not pay your suppliers and if you do not pay many of the workers supply will come down how does that <clears throat> play into the macro s situation structural declines in venezuela are a concern um, that needs to be replaced uh, we still have some inventories that will help opec's rebalancing process once the the inventories are kind of in balance again, and they're pretty close in, in Europe and they're pretty close in Asia, then <clears throat> you need additional oil to make up for <clears throat> the loss of Venezuela and to meet growing demand in the rest of the world. So yes, to your point, these are, these are issues that will affect the balance. Um, we do see uh, uh, on, on the flip side, Canada, Brazil, US still growing. Uh, so <clears throat> overall, overall, the production in the Americas will go up despite Venezuela coming down, despite Mexico also coming down still next year. Um, situation is, um, uh, is, is definitely getting more fragile and the cushions are getting thinner. Uh, that will allow OPEC, non-OPEC to start pushing some oil over time back into the market. Okay. Thank you, John. Um, I think with that, we are, in fact, now out of time. Uh, so it just remains for me to thank everyone who's listened in today. And, of course, Amina, Jill, and John for joining us as well. Um, so please join us again next month for our first uh, virtual roundtable of 2018, details of which will be posted at the start of January on our website, www.energyintel.com. So until then, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>